This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Thanks for joining me each week as I dive into a new case. We created this show to give victims a voice back when they no longer have one. And by doing so, we expose the monsters lurking all around us. Welcome back, everyone. I am solo yet again today because Homegirl is still on vacation. We're still jealous, but she will be back soon. And today's case is worth the listen. I first saw it when I came across a post made by Idaho Cold Cases Facebook page. It's a devastating 73-year-old cold case. Now, this case does take place in Idaho, and I'm from here, but where this is is far north, like eight hours north of where I'm at, so I haven't really heard the pronunciation of these small towns. I had to look into it, and I'm just going to pronunciate the towns as I heard the locals say it in my research. Hopefully, I don't totally butcher them, but from what I heard, this is how these three little towns are pronounced. So bear with me as I go through this case. With that, are you ready for today's case? On September 22nd, 1951, excitement floats through the air in Clearwater County, Idaho. The Clearwater County Fair and Lumberjack Days were in full swing. These events are typically held together still to this day in Orofino, Idaho in the fall. This is small town America, especially back in 1951 when this story takes place. The population of Orofino in 1950 was roughly 1,656 residents. The small surrounding towns weren't large either. I could only find demographics for Weipe, Idaho as far back as 1970. The population then was 713 residents. Kamii, Idaho sat at about 812 residents in 1950. So these small few towns loved coming together in the fall for lumberjack days and the fair. And I will attest that an Idaho fair is one of my favorite places to be. I will attend the Eastern Idaho State Fair at least five times during the week that it runs. It feels so good to be there, eating the fair food, people watching, loving on all the farm animals. It is the best. Just don't write the rights. They're a little sketch. So I understand why the residents would have so much love for the fair and be very excited about going. Clearwater County sits in very northern Idaho, sitting just about six hours south of the Canadian border. So in late September of 1951, the residents are pumped to be enjoying the fair. One of these residents was 12-year-old Lonnie Odell Jones. Lonnie had caught a ride to the fair with his friend Tommy Jared. 
Tommy and Lonnie were schoolmates, not besties, but this is a small town, so everyone was pretty friendly. Tommy's parents, Jack and Regina Jared, had driven the boys down from Weipe to Urofino, about half an hour to 45 minutes of a drive. Tommy, also known as Tom, explains in the documentary by Jamie Zerzolo that Lonnie was the type of kid who didn't have to be home at a certain time of night. Tommy never even knew who Lonnie's father was, and he described Lonnie's mom as, quote, something else. So let's dive into some of Lonnie's family history that I was able to find. Lonnie was born on November 1st, 1938, to his mother, Elna Jane Jones. Elna was born on April 8th, 1922, so she would have been about 16 years old when she gave birth to Lonnie. She likely needed her parents' help and guidance and had a lot to learn about growing up and becoming a mother. By 1951, when this story takes place, Elna would have been 29 years old, and like I said, Lonnie was 12 years old. And I'm not sure what she was doing at this time, because it's reported that Lonnie lived with his grandma. She was his primary guardian. I am assuming that Elna no longer lived there with her mother, but maybe she did also live there, like alongside Lonnie, and Lonnie's grandma was just more responsible, so she was taking care of her grandson. Elna's parents were Ethel M. Jones and Robert Walter Jones. I'm not sure when they divorced, but by the time of this story, they were not together. Ethel had went on to marry Alexander Spence, and she became Ethel M. Spence. Ethel and Robert, so her first husband, they had had five children together, Elna being their very last child. They had Mabel in 1911, Rita in 1915, Gerald in 1917, Ione in 1919, and Elna in 1922. Ethel did go on to have one more child after Elna, who she named after herself, Ethel May Spence, who was born in 1928. So these are all of Elna's siblings, Lonnie's aunts and uncles. Most of them lived there around the Weipe area. Lonnie's grandpa, Robert Jones, had moved to Washington. He was buried there when he died in 1967, so I don't think he was around. But most of the rest of the family is also buried there in Weipe. This is a very old case, so most involved have passed away. From what I could find, Lonnie did have a few cousins. He had a cousin just one year younger than him named Jerry Jones, who had a sibling who was just a toddler in 1952 named Richard Jones. And he also had another cousin just a year older than him named Irene Spence, and then a couple more toddler cousins named Kathleen and Roscoe Snyder. I assume the siblings got their kids together and that the cousins were somewhat close, most of them living there in or near Weipe. So in 1951, Lonnie is living there at his grandma's house with her and her husband. Maybe his mom, but I don't think so. And on that day in September, where we know he goes down to the fair with Tommy's family, his grandma Ethel also ends up making it to the fair. 
Tommy said that once he and Lonnie arrived, Lonnie ran off to hang out with a group of older kids. His grandma was able to track him down around 3.30 when she was ready to leave. But Lonnie, he was not ready. He begged her to stay, reminding her that Tommy was here and he could catch a ride home with him or a relative that he ran into. His grandma would later testify at a coroner's inquest that when Lonnie asked why he couldn't stay, she told him, like, you've basically been down here all day and I know you're going to want to come back tomorrow, so let's just call it a day. Ethel was born on October 5th, 1890, so she was 60, almost 61 at this time. She was tired, and she could not stay at Lumberjack Days all night with Lonnie, but he persisted. He wanted badly to stay and continue hanging out with his friends, and Ethel felt bad for him. She did want him to have a fun time, so reluctantly, she agreed. She gave him a little bit of money, reminded him to get something to eat, and told him, Lonnie, you remember that if you miss your ride, you will have to walk home. Now, there's about 25 miles between Orofino and Weipe, so I think she was really trying to get it in Lonnie's mind that he must catch a ride home, and that he couldn't wait too long. There also weren't cell phones back then. He couldn't just call up his grandma for a ride when he was ready to leave. So I don't think she actually expected him to walk, but she was letting him know, like, it's way too far to walk. You have to get a ride. Ethel would deeply regret letting little Lonnie stay back that night because the next morning he was not at home. Ethel went back to Lumberjack Days looking for Lonnie, and when she exhausted all efforts of contacting those she thought he might stay the night with, Ethel and Alexander Spence report their grandson as missing to the Clearwater County Sheriff's Office on September 23, 1951. Immediately, the search was on, and word spread quickly among the small towns. Tommy explained that once it got dark, it got scary out there for a young kid. There were hardly any streetlights in the small towns, let alone between the towns. Lonnie wouldn't have wanted to spend a night out there in the dark alone. The first thoughts are that Lonnie may have drowned in the Clearwater River. Even an airplane search was done between Urofino and Greer, Idaho. When word of Lonnie's disappearance reaches the community, people start to come forward. It turns out the last place Lonnie was seen was not at the fair. A group of his friends come forward to say that they went to the movies with Lonnie after the fair. The crew went down to the Rex movie theater and Lonnie leaves at some point during the movie or just after, but his friend's older sister offers him a ride. This friend was Dwayne Wilfong. Dwayne's sister is like, come on, we'll give you a ride, you can spend the night at our house, and then we'll take you home in the morning. But Lonnie's like, no, 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 no. He tells them that he was just going to go home with Tommy. This couldn't have been true. He must have known he was lying because he probably knew that Tommy had already left the fair. But Lonnie wanted to stay. Now, I'm not sure if Lonnie does go back to the fair, if it was even still open after they went to the movies, 
but I assume he does or he does something else because what else was he going to do if he wanted to stay back? Like he had to have gone and done something. But what he does between the movie and midnight is unknown. And the other thing I don't know is when the movie ended. Unfortunately, that's not reported. So I don't know how much time there was between the movie ending and midnight. But the next known sighting of Lonnie is by two teenagers driving on the highway past the Orofino Bridge. The teens are from the town of Kamii, and they had just dropped off their dates before heading home from Orofino. Let me explain the geography here a bit. Orofino is about a 25-minute drive from Kamii. It's just a straight drive down the highway. So straight 25 minutes from Orofino to Kamii. Weipe is in between the two, actually a little closer to Orofino, even though it is a longer drive between Orofino and Weipe. And this is because to get to Weipe, you have to come off of the highway and then the town is up near the top side of a mountain. So you likely would come off of the highway. You would cross over the bridge to cross the Clearwater River, and then you'd go up this mountain. It's probably one of those windy back roads, so it took a little longer. Like I said, from Weipe to Orofino is about 30 to 45 minutes. From Kamii to Orofino, it's 25 minutes. So, the two teen boys that spotted Lonnie were 19-year-old Leroy Kidder and 17-year-old Bob Hill. Just after midnight, they're driving past the Orofino Bridge when they see a young boy with his thumb up trying to hitch a ride. And they agree to pick him up. So Lonnie gets into the car with the boys. Apparently, they just chat about things like school, but they can't take him all the way up to Weipe. So they drove Lonnie as far as Greer, Idaho, which is still 17 miles away from Weipe. Driving it would have been another 25 minutes from Weipe to Greer. So this was a good spot, I guess, to drop Lonnie at in the teens' mind, because for the teens, it was on the way back for them to Kamii, which is another 20 minutes from Greer. But Greer is right off the highway where you would then take that side road up to Weipe. So they didn't want to go up that side ro road and take an extra half hour getting him up and back. Actually, it'd be an extra hour because it'd be 25 minutes for them up and then another 25 for them back. So th instead, they're like, we're just going to drop you here in Greer. And that's where you'd find the side road up to Weipe. So... No, it probably wasn't the smartest decision to drop off a 12-year-old boy in the middle of the night on the side of the road. But according to the teens, Lonnie told them he would be okay and that it would be easy for him to catch a ride up to Weipe. They said cars were coming and going past them. I'm assuming Lonnie just thought a lot of people would be coming home from the fair, would be coming home from Orofino, and he could definitely get one of them to give him a ride home. I wonder if the boys also maybe needed to be home by a certain time, or if they're just teens so it doesn't occur to them how dangerous this can be, but they drop Lonnie off here at the Greer Bridge, which crosses over the Clearwater River. 
One of the boys claimed to have watched Lonnie walk behind the car and start crossing the bridge towards Weipe. Leroy Kidder and Bob Hill then saw in the news a couple days later that a little boy was missing, and it was Lonnie. This is when they come forward and tell police about their interaction with him. Now they're known as the last people to see Lonnie alive. Much later in life, Leroy will talk with the press and tell them that him and Bob wished that they would have taken Lonnie up to Weipe. But because there were a lot of cars passing by and Lonnie told them that people would be by to pick him up, they left. Leroy said they weren't thinking. They were just young, dumb kids. He remembers it being Monday morning when they saw the information of his disappearance in the newspaper. So while Lonnie is missing, kids are let out of school to search. The whole area is out searching for him. But on September 27, 1951, someone who was not actively searching for the boy stumbles upon him. Orrin C. Wood was a logger from Weipe who was driving to Urofino for work. Now, he wasn't out searching for Lonnie at this time, but he had, of course, heard about the missing boy. This route took him down U.S. Highway 12, the same highway the boys had driven Lonnie on from Orofino to Greer. As Orrin is driving around 6.15 a.m., he starts getting some tummy grumbles and realizes he's got to go to the bathroom right now. So he pulls off to the side of the highway, hops out of his truck, and although there wasn't an overwhelming amount of traffic on this highway, Orrin still wants to be out of sight when he pulls his pants down to go to the bathroom. So he walks back into the brush a bit, and this is when he sees a pair of feet. His gut knots as he realizes what he's seeing. He assumed this was the missing boy. So Oren runs back to his truck, and he speeds off to Orofino, going directly to the sheriff's office to alert authorities. He would later testify at a coroner's inquest, quote, Well, I was just driving down the highway coming down and I got the cramps and I had to stop and I pulled over to the side to stop. Never thought a thing about it and got out and started down over the bank there and there it was. A body. I was pretty near on top of it before I seen it. Started down over the bank there and was taking my pants down. Once the police are notified, they rush to the incredibly horrifying scene. Lonnie was found in a kneeling position with his face down in the ground. His arms were behind his back, as if they had been tied together when he died and when rigor mortis set in. But they were no longer tied, yet they just stayed stiff in that position. Lonnie was blindfolded with his own handkerchief and his throat was cut ear to ear. His autopsy was performed by Dr. Joseph. I couldn't read his last name on the newspaper because of the blurred image. I was only able to make out the first name, Joseph. His, and Dr. Joseph ruled Lonnie's death as a homicide. The cause of death was due to a knife wound of the neck, which then resulted in a fatal hemorrhage. The autopsy reads, quote, 
The knife wound starts in the midline in the back on the left side of the neck. A false start was made and a second start is made. The first portion of the second start is downward, then across the front of the neck with an upward rotation of the fist of the blade, then slightly upward across the neck and finally downward to the end on the right side of the back of the neck. Whether the wound was made from the front or the back of the body is not clear. And this broke my heart, especially that part about a false start. Like this monster went to cut Lonnie's neck, stopped for whatever reason. Lonnie might've been fighting back. I don't know. And then he has to go for it a second time. This sweet little 12 year old boy, I cannot imagine how terrifying those last moments of his life were. This was a brutal murder. Lonnie's windpipe and carotid artery were severed as the neck wound went as deep as his vertebrae. It was also said in the documentary that the knife used was not sharp and that this was a quote, ragged wound. There were no other injuries to the body and there were no obvious signs of sexual assault although it was considered a possibility in this case. Now, one newspaper did report that Lonnie was found naked, but that wasn't true. Lonnie's body was found with his clothes on. I'm devastated to say that Lonnie's case has never been solved. The 73, almost 74-year-old cold case is the only unsolved homicide in Clearwater County. Following his murder, the community was shaken. How did this happen in their small corner of the world? What deviant would do this to a child? Did they live among the community still? After this, a lot of parents stopped letting their children go to the fair without an adult. Everyone grieved for Lonnie, especially his family and his grandma who loved him so much. Grandma Ethel died less than five years after Lonnie was killed on July 5th, 1956 at 65 years old. She was buried in the Weipe Cemetery, and this is the same cemetery where Lonnie was buried. I'm sure they were buried near each other. Now, although Lonnie's case was never solved, there were still rumors, speculation, and theories that have floated around. Tips were brought forward, people were questioned, and there were suspects in the community. But there were two main sets of suspects, and then a third theory that I read have kind of stuck around as the things people talk about most in this case. And honestly, I'm not convinced that any of the theories are actually what happened but let's see what you guys think. Among the first suspects were the teenage boys who picked Lonnie up and were the last known to see him alive, Leroy Kidder and Bob Hill. They started realizing that they were suspects when they were being tailed by police. They were also scared that a murderer might be out there and after them now. Leroy said later in life that they were, quote, scared to death kids. 
The thing that made them the most suspicious was that they picked Lonnie up on US Highway 12. And the boys then said they dropped him off at the Greer Bridge. But Lonnie's body was found just off the highway closer to Orofino, not near Greer. But someone who picked up Lonnie could have easily drove and dumped his body wherever they wanted and drove back towards Orofino. I don't think it makes the boys look guilty. And I just can't imagine a reason that two teenagers who are heading home from a date would pick up a 10-year-old boy just to slit his throat. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like, I could see it more if it was one evil teenager. And two does happen. Like, two people do kill together sometimes. It's a possibility for sure. It just doesn't seem like the most logical explanation in my mind. Especially with them coming forward to say they picked him up when they saw in the news that he was missing. They came forward before he was even found murdered. When they saw, he was gone. And they're like, hey, we saw him. We dropped him off here. I just can't see them coming forward if they were the ones who killed him. And I just don't see any motive for it unless they were just both pure evil. The Clearwater Sheriff's Office also does ultimately rule out the teen boys, but I'm not sure what led them to that conclusion. I couldn't find much on Bob Hill or Leroy Kidder besides this story because this is such an old case and there's very limited information, but I wanted to know about them, like what they were like as teens, who they became, and if any signs would have pointed to them being deviant. I did find information on a man named James Leroy Kidder, and I think think that this is the Leroy Kidder from our story because the birth dates match up. According to an obituary, James Leroy Kidder was born on May 31st, 1932 to Belva and Forrest Kidder. So he would have been 19 years old in 1951 when Lonnie goes missing. And it's reported that Leroy Kidder, who picked Lonnie up, was 19. Now, this obituary also says that James Leroy grew up in Clearwater Valley and graduated from Kamei High School in 1950. And again, the boys were from Kamei. So I'm like 90% sure James Leroy is the teen in this story. At least I hope I'm right. Because if I am, he seemed to live a very normal life. James Leroy married his high school sweetheart, probably the girl he dropped off that night before heading home. Her name was Dorothy Roby, and they married in 1953. They went on to have three kids, and the same year that they married, he was drafted into the army and served two years in Korea. Then he drove a school bus before being elected into the Kamei School Board. His wife, Dorothy, died in 2009, and he went on to marry Joanne Fields. He lived a long life before passing away just weeks ago at the age of 91. So if this James Leroy is Leroy Kidder from our story, he didn't go on to have any trouble with the law, no behavior that was concerning 
So I do believe these teens were only suspect due to being the last people to see Lonnie. But I don't think they had anything to do with the crime. The other suspect was Orrin Wood, the man who found Lonnie's body. His granddaughter is who went on to make the short documentary interviewing a few people from town that remembered Lonnie's murder. Oren's granddaughter is named Jamie Zerzolo. In 2005, she moved with her family to Weipe to live with their grandma, Linda. Linda Wood was Oren's wife. Jamie went on to wonder why so many people in town believed that her grandpa had murdered Lonnie Jones. I guess he became suspicious simply because he found the body. And on top of that, he was a quiet man who kept to himself and had just moved to Weipe years earlier. The community viewed him as a little odd. His friends, Sharon and Grant Miles, said that he just kept to himself, but he was a nice, caring, and gentle person. Once he was suspected in Lonnie's death, no one went out of their way to get to know Oren or the type of person he was. So the police questioned Oren quite a few times. One of these interviews, he was even questioned under the effects of sodium pen, pen whoa, can't talk, sodium pentothal, which is a truth serum. Oren went to his interview on October 12, 1951, and the medication was given by Dr. Walter W. Siebley. Those in the interrogation included Henry E. Savage, an FBI agent who came on to help investigate the case, V.L. Holloway, the detective on the case, Ralph Schwarzkopf, and Leo Hellowing. Nothing conclusive or sketchy came out of this interview, in fact, it proved to some that Oren was not guilty. It was said in that documentary that his granddaughter made that Oren was kept in custody for so long he was worried it was going to affect his business. Like he was being held while they questioned him over the course of days. Someone who has read the transcripts was interviewed by Oren's granddaughter. And this woman said that if you read them, you would know Oren didn't do it. Linda explains that her husband had some autistic tendencies, even though he was never diagnosed. He wasn't able to read well, but he was a genius with math. And he was just a quiet man. Apparently, Linda and Oren had also watched a movie once about a boy who was being coerced into a wrongful confession and being tra traumatized and brutalized. And Orrin was tense while watching this and told Linda that that is how the police treated him. And regardless of the community's side eyes, Orrin never left town. He told friends that this is because he didn't do it. And this is a small town, right? So Linda Wood knew Lonnie's aunt, Marianne. She once asked why Mary believed her husband would have done that to a young boy. She said that Mary barked back at her and was like, Orrin was new and he'd been in the army, so he knew how to kill. The answer shocked Linda because Orrin was in the army, yes, 
But when he was overseas, he didn't kill anyone. He just fixed trucks. Now, a sheriff elected decades later in the early 70s named Nick Albertson said that the case was completely bungled back in the 50s and the main suspect then, Oren, did not have any involvement in Lonnie's murder from what he could determine. So although the community might have always believed it was Oren simply because he found Lonnie's body, he was never arrested and he went on to live his life until he had his own tragic accident. As we know, Oren was a logger in Weipe. He was born on March 16, 1918 to Dean Warwick and Merrill King Wood. He first married Parlene West, but they ended up divorced, and that's when he moved to Weipe in 1948, just three years before Lonnie was murdered. When he first moved there, he ranched with his dad for five years before starting his logging operation. He married Linda more than a decade after Lonnie's murder, on April 14, 1967. He has three sons and three daughters. But in 1993, at 75 years old, Oren was on a log skitter, just doing his job, when the cable pulling the skitter snapped. He was located near Six Mile Creek, west of Kamii, and he died as a result of his injuries sustained in this accident. And just like with the boys, I don't see Oren as the most likely possibility. Like, sure, he found the body, but most people reporting that they found a body aren't also the ones who dumped the body there. I mean, sometimes, probably. But again, there's not much evidence, so anything could be a possibility. There's just nothing that points me towards thinking Oren did this. The police focus, like the intense focus on those who came forward and helped in this case, probably did not encourage others to come forward with information. I only saw two other very vague theories on this case. They are total speculation and rumor, but I'll share them with you just so you have an idea of all the theories floating around back then. On that Facebook post that the Idaho Cold Case page shared, someone who grew up in Weipe commented about a rumor they had always heard. And this was that Lonnie's cousin had reupholstered his car and moved out of town after. Now the cousins I found on findagrave.com were like within a few years of age with Lonnie, like less than two years older, one was like a year younger, but I don't know if he had any other cousins or if this rumor may be referred to cousins of his mom or dad. And that's as far as this rumor went. I couldn't find any other information on it, like if it was even true that someone in his family seemed suspicious and then like moved away. But this was just a comment that I noticed that was a little odd. Now, the last theory I read was that a carny killed Lonnie. I guess a carny refers to a person who works with the carnival. Now, maybe a carnival crew came into town for Lumberjack Days or the fair. 
I've never seen that confirmed, but the rumor I saw was that the carnival was in town and that Lonnie didn't go missing until after the carnival had shut down for the night. Some people believe that Lonnie was then picked up and murdered by one of the carnival workers. There's some speculation that there were multiple disappearances along carnival cruise routes across the country back then. And I mean, if this is true, it does seem more likely to me than any of the other theories put forward. But it's also just as likely that a random person passing through town could have grabbed him and murdered him. Or someone from town saw their opportunity and committed the murder and even went on to continue living in the area, avoiding suspicion. There are so many possibilities here because nothing has ever been narrowed down. In 2004, a new investigator takes over the case. This is Mitch Jared. He's the son of Tommy Jared the friend that Lonnie went to the fair with. Mitch went on to become the Clearwater County Sheriff, but retired in 2023. And he said that there was never any strong evidence that pointed towards the suspects in the case. Many people were pointed at simply, he said, because of a belief that they were homosexual. So even though there wasn't any evidence that, like people said this even though there wasn't any evidence that Lonnie was sexually assaulted. So they just weren't getting great tips. It was pretty much people thinking others were strange and being like, eh, he probably did it. And Mitch remembers his dad, Tommy, talking about how scared everyone was after Lonnie's murder. The kids didn't run around with ease so much anymore. They were all terrified of what could happen. The only remaining clues in Lonnie Jones' case is a small cardboard box of stuff, including a binder that holds the transcripts from interviews. Mitch says he can see in the records that items were sent to the FBI, but he doesn't know where the results are or where the items are. He says that there's really no chain of evidence laid out. There is nothing in this case that holds DNA. There's just a few items laying in a box. All of the detectives originally originally involved in this case have now died. So there's nothing to go on. And sadly, unless someone who knows exactly what happened comes forward, this case may remain unsolved forever. It is most likely that the person who did murder Lonnie has passed away by now. Because today, in February of 2024, the case is 73, almost 74 years old, and Lonnie himself, who was 12 at the time, would be 85 years old today, turning 86 later this fall. No one deserves to be taken out of this world the way that he was. And at such a young age, he was a child, one who had already been through enough. His parents didn't really seem to be able to step up to the plate for him, but he did have his grandma. His murder had to have destroyed her. I hope they had a rejoiceful reunion when she passed just years after he did. 
If you have any information that could help solve Lonnie's case, you can contact the Clearwater County Sheriff's Office at 208-476-4521 or the Idaho Cold Case Tip Line at 844-847-4040. Thanks for listening. If you love us, please share our episodes with your friends and family. Help spread the word about our podcast so we can continue making it for you. Find us on Instagram to support at True Crime Expod. That's True Crime Expod. And on TikTok at True Crime Exposed Podcast. I'm just going to again highlight the Idaho cold case tip line, which is 844 tip four zero four zero you can also find the idaho cold case facebook page by searching them up and showing them support they share a bunch of cold cases obviously and they get the word out it's a really good page to follow and again if you have any information on these cold cases you can call that tip line